1: According to the Center for Biological Diversity, about a million species are under the threat of extinction. But some of those species that were once on the brink of death have been brought back. That includes the black-footed ferret. Once among the rarest mammals in the world, their numbers dwindled to only 18 in existence in 1987. Decades of reintroduction efforts later, about a thousand black-footed ferrets are in the wild today. Reintroduction can be a successful way to reestablish a wild population, but how are decisions around reintroduction made, and who makes them? To help answer those questions, we visit Colorado, where the most recent fight over reintroduction is taking place. In 2020, Colorado voters passed a ballot measure demanding officials reintroduce gray wolves into western parts of the state by 2024. As that deadline approaches, questions remain around how the wolves will affect the region. Perry Will is a Republican state senator from Colorado's Western Slope and a retired state game warden. Here he is speaking to NPR's Kurt Siegler about the wolf release program.
0: I I wish there was room for wolves in this state. I truly do. But my professional opinion and my opinion as a wildlife biologist is uh, that ship sailed
1: a long time ago. We're discussing the Endangered Species Act and its impact 50 years later. For this episode of our series, SOS, Save Our Species, we're taking a closer look at reintroduction efforts. What works? What doesn't? And who decides? We'll get to those questions and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get into.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Squarespace measure your end-to-end online performance with powerful website and seller analytics get insights on top traffic sources understand how your reach is growing and more use code npr to save 10 off your first purchase of a website or domain
1: joining us now from colorado is eric odell he's the wolf conservation program manager at colorado parks and wildlife eric welcome to the show Thank you. Thanks
3: for the interest and thanks for the invitation to participate.
1: Also with us from Yellowstone National Park is Joanna Lambert. She's a scientist and professor of wildlife ecology and conservation biology at the University of Colorado Boulder. Joanna, welcome. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Well, let's start with gray wolves as a species. Joanna, what role do they play in their ecosystem?
4: Oh gosh! Um, You know, often I tackle this question by reminding folks of the um, some stuff they may have learned, maybe in high school, uh, maybe in college, about food webs and the ways that species interact. And often, the ways that species interact is depicted in terms of uh, sort of a triangle, right? And if you think about that triangle, with at the very top we have predators, and right below that we have the stuff that the predators eat, which are all the prey, and then below the prey species, we have that level that's all the vegetation, right? Mm -hmm. So what has happened around the world, and and we know this to be the case on on basically every continent, is that very top portion of that food web or of what we call like a, a trophic triangle or pyramid has been removed, right? So what this means is that in the absence of predators, prey species... Species, like in the case of gray wolves, um, prey species like elk, like deer, can sort of explode in their population numbers. And then once we have that explosion of, of those prey species, they need to consume food and the foods that they're consuming is, of course, the vegetation. So in areas where we have restored uh, predators, especially apex predators, which are at the very top of that, of those food web interactions, what we find is that there are all kinds of cascading effects on those levels below them with, a, with somewhat of a decrease in those, in those herbivores or those prey species and then a recovery of the, of the vegetation in those areas. So,
1: so, so what happened to the wolves? They used to roam across the U.S., but by the early 1900s, they were eliminated everywhere except northern Minnesota. That's right.
4: Um, well, there was a concerted effort to do so, right? This really started with a pre- uh, predator control ethic that came over from Western Europe, right? As um, settlers kind of landed on the North American continent and encountered species such as gray wolves, uh, bear. In in Europe, the there's a, a, a completely similar, so commensurate species to our grizzly here known as brown bear. And those species had, been eradicated in, in Western Europe. And then upon arrival here to North America, um, it was somewhat of an affront um, to encounter those same species again. So throughout uh, the basically really throughout the ni- 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, there was a concerted effort at every level of jurisdiction, from local all the way up to federal, to control those predators, and it, we were extremely effective at doing mm. so, um, not only... You know, rifles, but also poisons were employed in trapping.
1: Eric, Colorado voters passed Proposition One Fourteen in twenty twenty, and again, it, it demanded that officials bring gray wolves back to Colorado's western mountains by twenty twenty four. What was laid out in that ballot measure?
3: Yeah, so the the ballot measure is was was. Petition signatures were gathered, and, and they got enough signatures to to have a ballot initiative, and, and the citizens voted on that in 2020. And, and what that really said was that the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission, our, our governor-appointed body, or it, which, which comes down to us, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Agency, the state wildlife agency that's responsible for the management of all the wildlife species in the state, had to come up with a, a management plan that addressed several different things, uh and and begin take the steps necessary to begin reintroduction by the end of of this calendar year. So we had to describe how we would re- do a reintroduction, we had to describe how we would address conflicts that arose by having wolves on the landscape and we had to describe uh how we would achieve recovery from the state perspective. You know, we're we are the state agency, not the federal agency, so the the Federal Endangered Species Act is a very important piece of legislation, but we also have our, our state Endangered Species Act, and, and, and which is the scope that we have authority over. So, all of those th- those different aspects had to be addressed in a management plan that we uh, began the process almost immediately after the ballot initiative passed. We began the process to develop that plan, and and now that that's been approved by the commission, we're working towards the uh, the implementation of the logistics to to do this reintroduction.
1: Well, in May, Colorado released the plan saying they'll release 30 to 50 wolves in the state over the next three to five years. Where will the state get these wolves, Eric?
3: We are headed to Oregon at the beginning of next month to, to go and and capture some wolves from, from the wild in in Oregon. And that's, that's the, the first source that we'll use for, for year one. Like you said, we'll, we'll anticipate translocating 10 to 15 animals a year for, for three to five years. So a total of 30 to 50 animals or so, uh, for, for the, in that time timeframe. So, so first sources is coming from Oregon.
1: Now, the gray wolf was removed from the endangered species list by President Trump's administration in 2020. It was put back on that list 15 months later. Joanna, what makes the gray wolf unique when it comes to conservation efforts?
4: Oh you know there 's everything about gray wolves is unique. Um, they occupy just their, just a, a really really significant kind of socio cultural space right we 've got, we've got myths about them we 've got legends about them we 've got fairy tales, Aesops fables had something <laughs> something to say about wolves so um, you know it 's not so much about the biological recovery of, of gray wolves well it 's everything to do with the biological recovery but what i mean by that is that wolves given half a chance will do fine they're incredibly flexible they are excellent dispersers. They can move long distance. They are intelligent. They are what we call phenotypically plastic. They can cope with a lot of change. And that is why, historically, they've done so well. What the challenge is with gray wolves, and this is maybe the case with other apex predators as well, but particularly so with with gray wolves because of their kind of cultural status, is the kind of social carrying capacity, right? So ask any anybody in the United States about wolves, and almost certainly someone has an they have an opinion, right in in one way or another. And so, what is what has been and will continue to be uh, a challenge in the recovery of the this species is making sure that folks understand sort of the the significance of predators in landscapes. Well,
1: well to that point, uh, Orion Fertel is a realtor and resident of Summit County, Colorado, and here's what he told NPR's Morning Edition about Colorado's wolf reintroduction plan.
5: To have a wild and dangerous animal that is intelligent and that is out there is, it's frightening. It's frightening to think of taking your children, your family, your pets, and just trying to go on a day hike.
1: Eric, how populated are the areas that the wolves will be released to in Colorado? But
3: Colorado has is, is changed a lot. There there are a lot of people, Yeah both living and visiting in in the state and so it's it's a different landscape than than a lot of the other places where wolves are are well established that said th- there's a lot of fear about having wolves in in the state and that comes from from all sides you know from both the, the recreation side of things from the livestock production side of things and and I think that there's a lot to learn and I, I you know fundamentally the wolves don't pose a major threat to to recreators I think that there's some concerns about how Wolves might interact with dogs and and people that are hiking with dogs, things like that. But it's generally that the the threat to humans, to to people, uh, just doing their thing, is is very 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 low. In fact, no no documented cases of any uh, wolf attacks or, or lethal attacks by wolves on on people in the lower 48. And so I I think that that's a you know there's a lot of work to do to educate uh, and and to talk about both the the exaggerations and the, the fear of exaggeration in both. Uh, the livestock production, and and also I think the the exaggeration of of the the impacts that wolves will have. I, I you know I, we, there's lots of stories of how wolves will have all these. Uh, amazing effects on, on the ecosystem. And, and while that may be the case in, in some national parks, as, as Joanna had mentioned, I think that there's uh, also the, the reality of there. Well, Colorado is, is a very changed landscape and, and the, the effect of having wolves in the, on the landscape may or may not achieve the, 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 the both the fear and the excitement that, that people share for the animal.
1: We're going to head to a quick break, but when we return, what role does reintroduction play in conservation efforts and how successful has it been in the past? Stay with us live- Lots more still ahead.
2: Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional 200 dollars
6: Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I
5: was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it.
6: For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour
1: podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the discussion. Eric, I want to turn back to the concerns of residents. A Colorado voters passed Proposition 114 in 2020. It demanded that officials bring gray wolves back to Colorado's Western Mountains by 2024. And in May, the state released a plan saying they'll release 30 to 50 wolves into the state over the next three to five years. Eric, we were talking about the concern of some of the residents of Colorado's. How are you balancing the concerns of residents, business owners, and ranchers in the state?
3: Yeah, the the plan that we developed, we, we were very intentional, and and we took took the time necessary to to listen to the whole perspectives, the whole spectrum of perspectives that people have on wolves, and and there are the there is a whole spectrum, and so we began a, a really long process to to listen to to what the public had to say, and we convened two separate groups as we put our our plan together. One was a very technical group, the people that were associated with that are currently associated with wolf management in other states, people that were involved with the reintroductions in, in Yellowstone and in central Idaho in the mid-90s, and, and other aspect, technical scientific aspects to the reintroduction, as well as a stakeholder group that, that represented that whole spectrum, a kind of a slice of life and, and the the perspective on wolves, and asked them all, all different kinds of questions about what they thought wolf management, wolf reintroduction should look like. And and so we we're very intentional about that effort and, and of course, keeping our, our commission appraised a of all the process as well and, and several public comment sessions with, with those meetings as well. So really a, a very intensive and extensive effort to solicit all kinds of perspectives that, that were then brought to our commission. And, um, you know, lots of lots of compromise was was brought in throughout all of those discussions. I don't think anybody's entirely happy with the way that the plan came out, which I think is a good sign. I mean, we've got to the point where everybody can live with it, we think. I mean, we will have, Wolves on the ground. We will have a, a healthy population of wolves. Colorado can support a, a population of wolves, and that's our primary goal: is to establish a, a self-sustaining population of wolves. And we have the ways to address conflict when when conflict comes up, whether that's through the deployment of different kinds of tools and techniques to try to avoid conflict, as well as uh, payments when there you know compensation payments when there is confirmed depredation by wolves, just like we do for for many of our other game species. And so I think that we've. We've really worked to to listen to a lot of the the different perspectives. And there are some that are that are very opposed to the idea of a wolf reintroduction, but the, the fact of the matter is that the, the citizens have voted. It is the the state statute and, and as state employees and as a state agency we we implement state law and, and that's what we're doing. And so it's it's a, a big effort and and lots of uh, perspectives have been been heard over the last three years, and, and I'm sure that we will continue to hear those perspectives as, as the wolf population becomes established as well.
1: That's Eric O'Dell. He's the Wolf Conservation Program Manager at Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Now, the California condor is North America's largest bird. Its wings stretch more than nine feet tip to tip. The condor used to soar above much of the western U.S., but populations dropped to record low numbers in the 1980s. By 1987, there were zero condors left in the wild. Breeding and release programs began shortly after, and thanks to those conservation efforts, there were more than 560 California condors in the world as of last year, but less than 300 50 of those are in the wild. That's according to the National Park Service. Joining us now is someone who knows a lot about California condors and what it takes to reintroduce them to the wild. Kelly Sorensen is a wildlife biologist and the executive director of the Ventana Wildlife Society. That's a nonprofit focused on reintroduction of the California condor to its native habitat. He joins us from California. Kelly, welcome to the program.
6: I appreciate the opportunity to be here.
1: Also with us is Benji Jones, senior environmental reporter at Fox. Benji, welcome back.
6: Hey Jen good
1: to be with you. Kelly, why did condor populations drop? Well, I
5: think a lot of it was uh, direct persecution, uh, shooting, uh, poisoning. Uh, I heard earlier uh, in the, your discussion with wolves uh, you know the, that uh, predator control programs were in place where poisons were put out in in, um, in carcasses. Well, condors are obligate scavengers, and so they were also affected by by poisoning. Um, and also, the biggest problem that condors face is uh, lead poisoning. And we know that uh, today, in the modern population, it represents a little more than half of all known condor deaths attributed to that one cause. And of course, that's from the ingestion of spent lead ammunition. And surely, that's been going on for decades.
1: How does the process of reintroducing a condor into the wild begin? Well, the interesting thing with
5: condors uh un- unlike peregrine falcons or bald eagles uh, and other raptors is they're uh, very long lived they're a highly social species they're i would say as social as, as wolves actually um, they spend a great deal of time um, socializing together, which is really unique in the in the bird world so when we devised techniques for the reintroduction of the condor, working very closely with our zoo partners, there were a lot of things we had to work out. For example, in the uh, early stages of the effort, when uh, condors were being raised in in captivity, um, the only thing that was available was a lookalike puppet. But condors are very smart, and uh, they they really weren't tricked by this little puppet. And some of those condors released to the wild exhibited... uh, bad behavior or deleterious behavior, such that they had to be captured and brought back into captivity. So then the next attempt um, was to provide an opportunity for uh, these young condors to see adults uh, at a young age looking through one-way glass. We, we call that mentoring. And uh, then all of a sudden, the, the behavior of those birds uh, improved uh, dramatically. And you really can't see any difference between a puppet-reared bird and a condor that had been raised by its parents, behaviorally speaking.
1: You know, Benji, we spoke about how Colorado voters became the first to mandate reintroduction efforts. Why is reintroduction usually under the purview of the federal government? So the federal
6: government, um, obviously the, the Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fisheries Service oversee the list of endangered species in the U.S., so those are species that are endangered, federally endangered, or federally threatened, and it is really their responsibility to ensure the conservation of those species, which means that you are not doing harm to those species, and um, government agencies themselves cannot degrade some of the critical habitat for those species either. And so, because um, because you have these listed species. You'll have the federal government engaged to ensure that they are not um, ensure that they are following all the necessary protocols and so forth when it comes to reintroductions that are really high stakes when you have a small number of species to begin with.
1: Joanna, zoom out a little bit for us. What role does reintroduction play in species uh, conservation efforts?
4: Right. Excellent question. I mean, I I really think it's important to pull out the lens here and just recognize that we're living in the sixth extinction, right? The the, we're living in a time when more species are going extinct than you know even since dinosaurs. Um, And so, as a consequence of that, there are a lot of uh, conservationists that are talking about the overarchingly rewilding at areas of planet Earth, reintroduction of species or populations. Of species into areas where they were formerly found is one of the tools of rewilding, right? And this is going on around the world. We're hearing a lot about Colorado right now, but in fact, reintroductions, especially of um, right now apex predators into various regions along with their prey after uh, vegetation has been restored, is going on in Eurasia, it's going on in Africa. There are some fantastically successful initiatives that are are going on right now, for example, Gorongosa uh, National Park in Mozambique. It's an incredibly important and powerful tool in the toolbox of recovery that, that we have to address, to offset this biodiversity extinction crisis that we're living in.
1: Benji, how helpful is the Endangered Species Act in determining which species are up for reintroduction?
6: So the Endangered Species Act it, it is somewhat helpful in that there is just a lot more oversight as soon as the federal government gets involved when it comes to understanding the risks that a population of species faces and how many are left, and so. When, when you were trying to make a decision about whether to launch a reintroduction program, which, to be clear, is, is very difficult to do. It's incredibly costly. It's time-intensive, and you need funds over a long period of time, and you have to do a lot of research to make sure that you're doing it right. So reintroduction is often considered a last resort, at least. It, it used to be. It's more common now. Um, but because it is, it is um, so, so high-risk, that you do need to have a lot of that oversight and you have to have a lot of information. And so the Endangered Species Act has been really helpful in terms of really putting, a, putting fuel into, into research vessels around understanding populations. And also it brings a lot of resources, a lot of money to individual species. And again, those reintroduction efforts are expensive. So having that money from the, from the federal government really is essential.
1: And when you talk about it being high risk, what are the concerns?
6: The concerns are that you are trying to manage potentially a small number of species that only exist in captivity in some cases. So like the black-footed ferret, which you mentioned, you don't want those to go um, to, to, to die in captivity because then you're losing them permanently. That would be extinction. There's similar work happening in Hawaii with land snails where you have these snails in populations. They're endangered snails that are only found within buildings on uh, and not in the wild. And so the risk is that you are literally managing the last vestiges of a species, and that is really intense work. And again, it requires so much care to make sure that you are able to actually breed them successfully. And then there's the, the other part of it, which is that once you introduce them, there's a lot that can that can potentially go wrong. There are a lot of challenges to reintroduction.
1: We'll take a quick pause here. When we come back, we take a look at how definitions around what species are endangered affect conservation efforts.
5: On NPR's Throughline, We cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe.
0: Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln?
1: Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from Mark, who writes, "As endangered species reintroduction was a big part of my life growing up. My father, Warren Parker, was the original coordinator with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for the first ever reintroduction program for the Red Wolf in the 1980s. He dealt with lots of opposition from local residents of eastern North Carolina at the time, but eventually won over majority support. I look back on his work as groundbreaking and important to the continued health of our ecosystem. It, Kelly, what makes species reintroduction successful? Well,
5: it, it requires that the underlying threat be dealt with, or at least there's a, a way to do that in, in in a reasonable amount of time. That that habitat is still intact. That their food resources are are there. That there's the political will to support. The species, and oftentimes money. You know, a, a lot of uh, reintroduction efforts. Uh, you know, as mentioned, you know, they're expensive, and you need support. And so you, you know, you really need all of those factors in, in order to be uh, successful.
1: Here's an email we got from Dirk. Has the debate changed at all with the growth of certain invasive species? For example, the influx of so-called super pigs from Canada and Minnesota, North Dakota, and Montana. Would mountain lions be a natural predator working for agriculture in this case? Joanna, what can you tell us?
4: I would say I'm not. I I don't want to speak too. Um far out of my area of expertise, and I certainly don't know the various jurisdictions on the, you know, handling of of invasive species, but um, there are, you know, certainly at every level um, bodies of of management that are trying to address those, right? Um, There are some scholars out there that have been discussing the fact that we just need to begin to start thinking about the fact that we're living in a changed world and that we're not going to be able to get back whence we came right that the systems that we are living in are are, are forever changed now how that influences various philosophies on on the how you handle invasive species varies by area varies by species um, and yeah it's it's you know it's occurring around the world there are some species that are vastly more problematic than others in terms of what they're Doing in in outcompeting other local species, endemic species, um, but it is a reality of of our world. I mean, certainly every time we you know walk into a protected area with boots that have mud on them, and we've got seeds in there, we're inadvertently moving seeds that may not have previously been there, and and plants are recruiting that way. So it certainly is uh, one of the many um, ways in which we're seeing a converted planet Earth. Just last month, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced that it's delisting 21
1: species from the Endangered Species Act due to extinction. Eight of those are birds that were only found in Hawaii. Benji, why is Hawaii a hotspot for biodiversity and extinction?
6: Yeah, it's a good question, and I just got back from 10 days there doing some reporting on endangered species, and it's actually considered by some the, quote, extinction capital of the world. So it's a really bleak place, although very beautiful um, so, so one of the main reasons is just that Hawaii is very isolated geographically. And so the plants and animals that evolved there are very unique and only found there. So their populations are, are, are already somewhat small because you don't find them widespread across the planet. And they're also the native wildlife there is not um, defended against predators like pigs and rats and mosquitoes. Because they evolved without them. So you have these islands with lots of birds and and other animals that are just not well defended against any kind of, of predators. And so when Polynesians, but more importantly Europeans, came to the islands, they brought a lot of species with them, whether intentionally or not, including things like rats and mosquitoes and these plants and animals didn't have any way to defend themselves against them and so you saw so many species go extinct as a result of of these non-native species so it it's it's been really Um, I think, frightening to see just the rate of extinction in Hawaii.
1: We got this text from one of you. We have a nice little zoo here in Bloomington, Illinois. They breed some endangered species like the snow leopard. Many zoos are doing this today, I believe. Now they are also going to breed giant anteaters. We went to see the female the other day. The male isn't here yet. What a strange creature. Joanna, what role do zoos play in species reintroduction efforts?
4: Oh, they play an incredibly important role, and especially some zoos right that are sort of dedicated to the research behind that and it is um, as you know as pre- previously commented on um, the, the rather more expensive version of the reintroduction effort right because those animals have to be held in captivity oftentimes those species do not mate readily in captivity, so then there has to be artificial insemination that goes on um, and then, critically, as also has been discussed, once you put those animals back into the wild, there has to be the resources and the land, you know, sort of availability of area for those species to, to do well. And with many species that, that rely on learned behavior, um, you know, that are highly intelligent, often that can be a challenge, right? That they don't have the repertoire of behaviors required to cope now in a wild. But zoos are increasingly important in this role. Um, and, um, you know, the National Zoo with golden lion tamarins, for example, um, being put back into the dry forests of, of Brazil was, was, you know, in, absolutely instrumental in ensuring that that species did not go extinct.
1: Benji, why are zoo breeding programs sometimes controversial?
6: Yeah, it's a good question, and, and I agree with Joanna that they have been absolutely essential to to, um, to reintroduction efforts. The San Diego Zoo being a good example of that. Um, Golden lion tamarins, as you mentioned, but also panda bears—like that was huge effort—and. I mean, over many years, scientists, veterinarians figured out how to breed pandas, which was incredibly difficult, involved all kinds of wild approaches, including, like, panda porn. Um, so it, 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 they have been very, very central. It has become a little bit controversial, um, from, largely from the animal welfare community, uh, because often you are, you are seeing zoos being very effective at breeding animals, and that's something they do really, really well. Captive breeding is what they do best but there's concern that those animals are not necessarily often actually reintroduced into the environment. So pandas, again, are a good example. You have hundreds of pandas in captivity of these really high-tech breeding facilities that attract a lot of money because people can come and see them and people love to see them, of course, but you actually don't see a lot of reintroductions happening because that's the really difficult side of things. And so this kind of imbalance between zoos Touting their, touting their captive breeding programs as being this kind of cornerstone of conservation but not pairing it always with these kind of constant reintroductions makes it seem to some folks that it's really more about the zoos making their names seem associated with conservation but not necessarily being, doing a lot in terms of reintroductions.
1: I mean, Benji, we've talked about the importance of funding, but how politicized is the conversation around reintroduction nationally?
6: Um, I would say pretty politicized. It really depends, though, on the species. So when you're talking about gray wolves, um, they've really been caught up in the the culture wars playing out, um, especially in the West. And I think it just kind of gets to this idea that we we know how to add species to the endangered species list, but it's not always as clear what it looks like. To recover them, to actually increase the populations of them, and as as Joanna and others have mentioned, like the world that we live in is very different now. There are more people. There are more um, human communities close to wilderness. And so, what does it actually look like to live with? predators. And I think that when we think about reintroductions, it's as much a social challenge as it is a scientific one. And so um, to, to Eric's point, there needs to be a very concerted effort to educate the public about how to avoid something like wolves. And And there are ways to do that. It's not like they're going to be in your backyard, as he like, like he was mentioning. They're not, they're not going to interact with people very often. And so I think making sure that social component is incorporated into any strategy... Is, is absolutely
1: essential. Joanna, what considerations should states make when they're thinking about reintroducing a species?
4: So the first part of that, and it sort of puts into light the significance of what we're doing here in Colorado, is whether or not that species is on the National Registry of Endangered Species, whether it's listed or not, in which case it's under the purview of, of the federal government, right, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Um, and, that, and that is indeed what makes this particular reintroduction so noteworthy. This is the first time that a species that is listed on the Endangered Species Act is being reintroduced by an entity other than the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Now, of course, in, intensive um, conversations have been going on with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and indeed, um, recently, the, um, the administration of a 10-J permit, which allows for the um, reintroduction of, of an endangered species under the designation of, of a non-essential experimental population— um, but it really, you know, just at the get-go, it depends on the status of that species in the first place.
1: And Kelly, in just a, a quick sentence, where do you think states and localities should place their emphasis to try to combat extinction in the first place? I think focusing on habitat uh,
5: is going to be really important and something that we can all work together on. Park agencies, and non-governmental organizations, private individuals, we can all work together to improve habitat. And I think that's really going to be important for wildlife in the long run.
1: That's Kelly Sorensen, wildlife biologist and the executive director of the Ventana Wildlife Society. Also with us, Benji Jones, senior environmental reporter at Vox, and Joanna Lambert, professor of wildlife ecology and conservation biology at the University of Colorado Boulder. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly, the secure AI writing partner that understands your business. With Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial.
2: Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.